one of the most interesting things in my line of work uh, when you read as many books as I do and speak to as many authors as I do is that uh, there will be those occasions when a book crosses your path and it never dawns on you that one could write a fascinating book about the topic at hand. Some topics just immediately seem like the most interesting, fascinating, sort of limitless topic imaginable, and others just have sort of an earthbound quality, at least at a glance. And then you just think about it a moment, and you realize that this topic and this book uh, unlock a, a whole universe of, of discovery and of new insight. And that is the experience I had uh, with this book at hand called A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World. Trade is, of course, something that is so central to all of our lives, but one of those things we simply don't think about. And it is so vitally important to the state of the world, of our own uh, national economy, of what it is we consume. And its history is incredibly rich and complicated, and yet also seems to focus upon uh, abiding principles, which uh, over the generations have have not necessarily changed that much. And in particular, what seems to be uh, a human being's intrinsic desire to trade and barter with others. And uh, this rich, complex history is explored in, in amazing detail by William J. Bernstein. Perhaps you know his well-known book, The Birth of Plenty. He's also written a book called The Four Pillars of Investing. And uh, again, this latest book is called A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World. It's published by Atlantic Monthly Press. And I'm very excited about the next few minutes uh, being able to speak with William J. Bernstein about his wonderful new book. William J. Bernstein, we welcome you to the morning show. Happy to be here, sir. Uh, your book is published, as I just said, by Atlantic Monthly Press. Uh, was this excerpted in Atlantic Magazine? Oh, I wish. Uh, no, sir. <laughs> I, uh, it's, it seems like the kind of thing that might have appeared in the pages of that magazine, but I, I didn't remember seeing it there. I'm glad it uh, comes to us in the form of this book. Tell us what gave you the idea to, uh, to create a book around this topic, and I wonder if it was at all a hard sell given the fact that just at a glance it isn't the sexiest of topics. Well, it's interesting because the, the sell was in my direction. Uh, I, uh, I would have agreed with you uh, when you started, when you said that it didn't seem like a terribly interesting topic at first. And it was, in fact, assigned to me. Uh, about four years ago, I got a phone call from uh, an editor at Grove Atlantic, Inc., and they asked me if I was interested in writing a, uh, a book about world uh, trade. And uh, my first response was, uh, surely you've got the wrong Bernstein. You want Peter Bernstein. Uh, and they said, well, uh, actually, uh, we had lunch with him last week, and uh, he's busy writing a book about the history of the Erie Canal. But he said, there's this other Bernstein. Uh, and that's how I came to, to write this book. This, actually, this book was actually assigned by me. And at first, I have to admit, I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about it, but that very quickly changed. <laughs> uh, at what point did it change? And at what point did, it, did this book begin to, to take on the scope which it, which it has? I mean, wh- was it always going to be this sprawling history of, of trade around the world, or, or did it become that? No, it was it was assigned to me uh, that way. They wanted a wide-angle book about 
uh, the long-range history of world uh, trade. And it, it very quickly became a fascinating topic because what I was looking for were thematic anecdotes or stories that uh, explained the process. And you don't have to come across very many of these stories before you realize that the stresses and the cracks and the strains and the discontents of globalization are a very old story, centuries old, and in some cases, even millennia uh, old. And all you have to do is change a couple of the proper nouns uh, and modernize the grammar a bit, and you might as well be ripping the latest AP uh, wire uh, from a a Senate Trade uh, Committee hearing. Right. Of course, uh, certain specifics are different, too, in that we might not be talking about camels and frankincense, but uh, otherwise, many of the issues, many of the uh, things that can be potential problems and, and the way in which trade can mean a bonanza for certain people, uh, a lot of those are, are, are sort of eternal truths still with us. Yes, absolutely. You, you have that exactly right. And, and not only that, but you, know, you, you very quickly find out that the world didn't suddenly become flat when Al Gore invented the Internet. Uh, this, is, this is a very old process. I want you to share with our listeners uh, the the simple little anecdote which begins the book's introduction, uh, and it, it we we almost get the sense that this was sort of an epiphany for you in a sense. Uh, tell us what happened to you uh, in a hotel lobby in Berlin, Germany. Yes, it's September in two thousand and four. And uh, I'm just heading out for the morning uh, for a uh, day of, of sightseeing in Berlin. And uh, the uh, hotel clerk and I are exchanging greetings in our fractured English and German, respectively. And I uh, take an apple out of the bowl uh, on the hotel clerk's uh, dias there, and uh, I, I put it in my backpack. And by and by, uh, I get hungry later on in the day, uh, and uh, I eat the apple. I'm sitting in the tear garden with my wife, and I almost didn't notice this little sort of label on the apple, this sort of little label you see on pieces of fruit, and it said product of New Zealand. All right, Now, here it's September. They're picking apples in Europe. Uh, and yet, here I am, you know, eating this apple, which obviously was not a terribly expensive item. They were giving them away for free at this not horribly fancy hotel. Uh, and and New Zealand, if you look at the globe, is almost exactly on the other side of the world from uh, from uh, from Germany. So here I am eating this bulk product, this fruit from the other side of the world. Uh, at exactly the same time, they're harvesting them from from the uh, trees in uh, in Europe. So that was sort of an amazing experience for me. You say televisions from Taiwan, lettuce from Mexico, shirts from China, and tools from India are so ubiquitous that it is easy to forget how recent such miracles of commerce are. What better symbolizes the epic of global trade than my apple from the other side of the world, consumed at the exact moment that its ripe European cousins were being picked from their trees? Uh, in a sense, your book is, is not about that. Your book is also about how, although this seems like something unique to our own moment, that it's not as unique to the present day as we think, that in fact uh, this has happened to, to varying extents throughout almost all of our history. 
Yes, very early in human history, goods were being transported over very long distances. As long ago as 5,000 years ago, for example, uh, the Mesopotamians were trading grain uh, for copper from about a thousand miles away, and they probably were obtaining luxuries from the Indus Valley, which was almost three thousand uh, miles away. By the dawn of the Common Era, the Romans uh, had a fairly vigorous trade with China. You're talking about basically the ends of the known world uh, trading uh, with each other. Now, you know, admittedly, these were very low volume trades. They were trades in low volume, very high uh, expense goods, silks and porcelains and uh, silver uh, and jewels and things like that. But and, and the other truly amazing thing about the Roman trade with China was that neither country really knew of the other. Hmm. Uh, the trade was carried through multiple intermediaries over, over, over great distances, and it probably took silk and silver as long as three or four years to, uh, to get from one place to the other. So we're talking about, uh, in the earliest day, trade of uh, what you call only the most prized merchandise traveling between continents. And now what happens today is we're doing that with something as mundane as an apple. Yes, sir. That's, that's, that's exactly it. And, of course, that has to do with the fall of transportation uh, costs. And, uh, and there have been, of course, moments in history when those costs have absolutely plummeted. I mean, just to jump ahead for a moment, when you're talking about how trade begins to... Uh, look in the 19th and 20th centuries, you tell us between 1830 and 1910, the costs of shipping by sea, canal, or river um, fell uh, somewhere between 65 and 87 percent. I mean, and that's just one moment in history where those costs come down. And of course, as those costs come down, the possibilities become nearly limitless. Yeah. And and the, the thing that I found absolutely fascinating about that is that one dramatic moment in time and it was a moment in time that wrought more changes more dramatic changes than i think we've seen at any point even in the 20th century i mean the internet the jet plane uh the personal computer uh i, I think those things pale into consideration with the what flowed from uh the invention of the blast steel process uh by henry bessemer uh, steel before that time was a very expensive product. It wasn't of uniform enough or high enough quality that you could cast it into uh, into steel uh, railroad rails or high-pressure boilers. Uh, the railroads and the steam engines before that time were really quite primitive and couldn't take the kinds of loads you needed to handle bulk uh, products. So this one man uh, set in train a series of events that we're actually still living with uh, today in, in terms of political economy. I mean, the, a lot of the views that we had today about protection and free trade flow directly from Bessemer's uh, process. It's so fascinating, too. You think about the way that this has utterly changed our lives and the way we live and the way the whole world functions. And it's this invention that most of us have never even heard of. Yeah, precisely. Uh, well, I think most people know, know, know what the blast steel process looks like. They've all seen pictures of these of this explosive process and sparks flying uh, in school or on educational television. But, yeah, it's something that's part of everyday life, and we, we, you know, we, we tend not to think of it as a dramatic event, but it was one of the most dramatic events and one of the most important events, I think, in all of human history. Sure, but none of us realize that, or very few of us realize its importance, and, and the vast majority of us can't even put a name to it. So. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> in fact, it's striking to me, and I wonder, uh, as you said about writing this book, 
I think one of the things that surprised me and amazed me is that if, if one is going to write a book about something like trade, and if you're going to do so very comprehensively, a rich history from all over the world, you end up talking about a whole lot more than ships and products. You end up talking about things like war and plague and all other kinds of, of subjects that wouldn't immediately spring to mind as, as, as being part of this story. Yeah, I mean, my model for that is a book that was written by Daniel Yergin about 20 years ago called The Prize, and it was a history of oil, uh, the, the modern oil industry. But in effect, really what it was was a history of the world during the 20th century looked at through the, the lens of oil. Uh, and and I, I have to admit that sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously, that's that's what I strive for when I write a book. Is I, I do when, I, when you write about a broad history like trade over a long period of time, what you really try to do is to write a history of the world from the point of view of trade. Hmm. You, we're speaking with William J. Bernstein, and we're talking about his book called A Splendid Exchange, How Trade uh, Shaped the World. Um, this is a really interesting uh, examination of this long history, beginning with its origins. And this is one of the things that is of such fascination, I think, to me and to most people, that, that we can actually peer into the, the, the dawn of human history and learn so much, despite the fact that, of course, so little of that world tangibly remains. Talk just for a moment about the challenge of trying to uncover the very earliest evidence of human beings trading with one another. To what evidence must we look to, to, to learn about ancient history in this way? Yeah, the, the process that you're talking about, the phenomenon that you're talking about is what I call history's flashlight. It's like you're in a huge, dark cave, and you've got a very small, very weak flashlight, and you can only hold it at a certain angle. So there are only some very small parts of the wall of the cave that you can see. Well, when you're talking about uh, human prehistory, 15, 10, 15,000 years ago, which is the period we're really talking about here, what can, you, what can you see? What can you examine? Well, you're limited to things that are extremely durable. So the only evidence that you have are stone uh, and later on uh, metal tools, maybe bone tools. Uh, so you can illuminate that. And then you're also dealing in, in a, lot of a lot of times with climates that are very dry, so you're more likely to find good evidence in a place like Egypt or Palestine or Iraq than, say, in Southeast Asia or, or Mesoamerica or Central South America, where it's warm and humid and things corrode. So uh, the very first trade that we really have evidence of uh, is in obsidian. And obsidian is this sort of black volcanic rock it's used by landscapers. Uh, it's actually a glass, and it's made only, as I've, as I've said, in, in volcanoes. Uh, and the one characteristic that it had that made it very valuable to prehistoric man was that it, although it was very, cha cha uh, very fragile, it was also extremely sharp. While it lasted, it was a great cutting tool. Uh, and so you have this good that's only produced in a couple of places, and, and uh, yet it's extremely valuable. So it was transported for, in cases, up to 1,000 miles, not only uh, in the Old World, but also... Uh, in, in Central America and the Yucatan uh, as well. There were some volcanoes where it was produced and it was transported for thousands of miles 
so this was obviously a trade item. What makes it fascinating to the modern uh, investigator is that you can actually identify which volcano these things came from, from, from their atomic fingerprints. So you can actually trace the trade away from the volcano over hundreds of thousands of miles along trade routes. And a man by the name of uh, Colin Renfrew uh, is the man who's done uh, most of, of this work. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating work. To hmm. read. Of course, what's interesting uh, and so tantalizing is that we can't really know, I suppose, very much about what was exchanged for it, or if in some cases if this obsidian was just forcefully taken <laughs> but uh but you are you are suggesting that that obsidian was was uh, was an item of trade in this very very early period is there much we can know beyond the fact that uh somebody traded something for it you hit the nail on the head sir we do not know whether this was simply expropriated or whether it was traded uh, when you're when you're going that far back, all that you can generally tell is that something moved in one direction, uh, and you're generally not going to have any evidence what if anything was moved in in the other direction. Hmm. I recently interviewed an uh, an author. I don't remember who it was or, or or the book, but one of the points of this book was uh, uh, undertaking to, to, to try to understand the lives of ordinary people. In uh, in Roman times, actually, come to think of it, was not an author. It was a uh, a, a visiting professor, I think. Uh, but they talked about how so much of the evidence that remains from the ancient world uh, is from the wealthy, because it was the wealthy who could afford to erect statues of themselves and build temples and so on, and uh, and ordinary people. Uh, didn't have the means to do that. They built such things, perhaps, but the, none of those sorts of things belong to them. So the footprint of ordinary people in so many cases is, is lost to us in certain eras, or largely lost, and we have to look in kind of indirect ways to see the evidence of what their lives was like. Uh, but it's interesting, what you're pointing at here in still more ancient times uh, is actually something left behind by what we would presume to be ordinary people. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, most of the the archaeological finds uh, that that you that you deal with are, of course, burial mounds of very wealthy people, royalty. Um, you know, one does find, however, in in prehistoric societies, tools which were presumably made by ordinary people. Uh, and uh, durable, uh, ordinary, durable household items from poor people as as well. But you're right; it's it's the the, the archaeological record is very heavily canted uh, in favor of the uh, the wealthy. Hmm. In talking about how apparently in some places we find tantalizing hints of things such as the trade of tin and other things, you say, but. Uh, if there was long-range trade in tin around this year of 3000 B.C., there must also have existed a similar long-range barter for other valuable items, such as linen, frankincense, myrrh, tigers, ostrich feathers, and a thousand other sights, sounds, and smells now lost to history. You, you say that so beautifully. I mean, in a sense, that sums up what is so frustrating about this, fascinating and frustrating, that the little we learn makes us so hungry to know more, and, uh, and to a large extent 
it isn't possible to know everything we want to know about this period. Yeah, that's that's exactly uh, correct. Um, we, you know, the, the the farther back you go, the less detail you have, and that's that was sort of the pleasure of one of the pleasures of the book is is the book was written more or less chronologically, uh, his, in, in a historical sense. So the, the the further I got in with the process, uh, the more of, of the ostrich feathers and the linens uh, and the frankincense that I saw. In fact, I saw quite a lot of frankincense as early as the three or four thousand BC. So there was some satisfaction even early on. Hmm. By the way, I, I, another topic that you know, we wouldn't immediately think is going to be part of this, but of course it is. You can't you can't do any of this without it uh, in our own day. Is the whole is the whole uh, existence of currency, which you call at one point sort of a lubricant of of commerce. Um, without it, trade required barter uh, between pairs of commodities. Tell us uh, or explain just a little further. What changes about trade when there is currency at play versus simply barter? Well, it's just one more thing that, that, that makes it more, it's a technological advance, just like transport, that makes it easier to trade. Imagine for a moment you have 10 goods, 10 different goods that you're exchanging, even locally, let alone over long distances. Well, if you don't have money, you have to barter them by pair. And there, if you do the math, there are 45 possible pairs of 10 goods. Uh, and, of course, if you have 100 goods, the number grows basically exponentially. Um, There's almost 5,000, uh, I believe, if you take uh, 100, 100 different goods. So this is a very inefficient way of doing things. You have you know, the price you have to have. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're bartering or you're trading, say, barley or barley, then you have to have a price for it in cows and in chickens and in cotton uh, and in every other good that the other guy wants to trade you for them. So, so I, I mean, if I, I'll give you one cow for this much barley, right. or I'll give you one goat for uh, this much silver or whatever. Yeah, and, and maybe he doesn't have cows or goats. Maybe he's got one of a hundred other goods, and you've got to know or have to be able to figure out what's the correct ratio of, of value between those two goods. But if you have, you know, uh, money and you have a hundred goods, instead of having 5,000 or so pairs, you only have 100 prices. Uh, and the world becomes a much easier place. And one of the really, truly remarkable things is that coined money is a relatively recent invention. Uh, it really, we really didn't have coined money before the Lydians uh, invented it about 2,600 years ago, hmm. in 600 B.C. And before that, silver was a medium of exchange. It was done by weight, but it's you know, very, very inconvenient if you're going to use even silver as an intermediary to, to be dealing with these bars and weights of silver. We're speaking with William J. Bernstein. We're talking about his book called A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World. Um, also in this portion of your book, dealing with kind of the earliest of, of examples of, 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 of trade, um, you talk about a really extraordinary work of art, uh, which shows us something uh, about maybe what early trade looked like to some extent, uh, a mortuary sanctuary with a painted relief that apparently is is uh, very very helpful, and you even give us a little sample of it in your book. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about. Oh, this is a a, a mortuary frieze at Deir el Bari, uh, which dates from uh, about 3,500 uh, years ago or so, and there was a queen, uh, Queen Hatshep, Hatshepsut. Uh, 
uh, who actually, uh, since she was she was a female, uh, and the um, pharaohs were supposed to be male, uh, basically uh, clothed herself and presented herself as as a male. Uh, and uh, she commissioned a trading expedition, which went to the land of Punt, uh, which was probably Somalia. Uh, so we're talking about voyaging perhaps a thousand miles down the Red Sea. And the frieze depicts the various uh, uh, stages of this journey. They're actually, it's divided more or less into four panels. Uh, and the four panels show the various stages of this journey. And it's quite obvious what they were doing was uh, trading. Uh, they were uh, loading uh, cloths and, uh, uh, and uh, sacks of, of grain onto the ship, the things that Egypt produced in an enormous quantity. And uh, they uh, get to punt, and then they offload these, these trade goods, and then they onload the things that they wanted from the land of punt, which were incense plants uh, and exotic animals. Uh, and, and so this, is, this was not, a, this was not a, uh, uh, an expedition of conquest. This was clearly an expedition of trade, and it showed in great detail. Hmm. I mean, and, and how wonderful that, that we have this to look at, because, of course, this comes in, in an era when, when that kind of really direct representation of what trade was p- probably is fairly scarce. Yeah, and, and the other thing it tells you, which is very interesting, is what the primary uh, commodity of long-distance trade uh, was. And it's, it's interesting that every era, every age, has its glamorous uh, trade, trade commodity. So, you know, 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, it was incense. And, you know, the question is, why incense? Well, it was used uh, because it burned very evenly and it smelled nice, and you give offerings to the gods because the smoke curled towards heaven. But more importantly, you know, in, in, in the pre-modern era, the world smelled to the high heavens. Uh, people didn't bathe. There weren't uh, sewage systems. And so you needed something to cover up the smell, and that was what, uh, what incense was used for. And then, you know, a thousand years later, the great luxury commodity, at least in the West, was Milk, uh, and then a thousand years after that, uh, it was uh, it was spices from the uh, from the Indies uh, that was the the great uh, trade commodity of their, the era. And you can trace the rise, in some cases, the rise and fall of empires uh, through these very these very glamorous uh, um, uh, commodities. For example, when you go to uh, to uh, the, uh, the the old Nabataean kingdom and you go to southeast. Uh, uh, Jordan, you see these amazing ruins uh, that made it into the, the Raider of the Raider of the Lost Ark, for example. Well, this was uh, this was uh, uh, a, 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 a a trading center for incense. It was a stop on the camel uh, uh, train uh, from 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 the camel trains from Arabia. And it's why the city these cities became so so very wealthy. You go to uh, uh, Venice, and what do you see? Well, you see this this incredible wealth. These grand palazzos. Where do they came from? Well, they came from uh, uh, the wealth generated by the spice trade, which is what the uh, the Venetians and, uh, and the Genoese also uh, controlled. Uh, of course, what isn't known, or what most people don't know, is that uh, what the uh, Venetians had that they traded for these spices uh, with the Egyptians were slaves from the Caucasus. I want to turn back to incense for a moment because this is a great moment in the book and also I think is a great example of of the kind of surprising things we learn about human history uh, when we take a, a close, thorough look at something like trade. You were just touching on 
why incense of all things would be at least at one point in time such a precious prized commodity. You write, although our imagination allows us to conceive the sights and sounds of ancient civilizations, their smells are well beyond modern comprehension. In cramped cities lacking effective sanitation, the nose discerned location as well as any map, the odor of feces from main sewer lines and slaughterhouses, the scent of urine surrounding government buildings, temples, and theaters, or the particularly offensive olfactory assaults of the tannery, the fishmonger, and the cemetery. Amid such stenches and where regular bathing and clean water and regular change of clothes were reserved only for the wealthiest citizens, few substances were as prized as myrrh oil, easily applied as a body lotion and capable of hiding the rank smells of everyday life. I mean, in a sense, this helps us think about and even try to experience through our imagination some facet of daily life in the ancient world, which otherwise never even occurs to us. Yeah, it wasn't for nothing that the Magi brought frankincense and myrrh. There was a reason. Hmm. I also want to talk about silk. This uh, actually comes early in the book as you introduce it as, of course, one of the really shining examples of of how extraordinary trade was, was achieved at a time when when technologically it was not very easy um, to do so. First, just explain for a moment to our listeners why silk was such a prized commodity, reserved uh, at least for a while, for only the very, very wealthy. Well, that's because the, the, the palette of materials for clothing uh, back then was so very limited. You, the poor used animal skins, uh, which were hot and uh, sweaty. Uh, uh, there was wool, which was, which was scratchy and also uh, quite warm, very difficult to dye uh, as, as well. Uh, there was linen, uh, which was much more expensive uh, and was you know, wrinkled very easily, again, didn't dye uh, very well. Uh, cotton was available, but it was actually more expensive than silk, and the reason why is it had to be imported from India or from, from Egypt, and uh, in the pre-industrial age, it was extremely difficult to manage to, uh, uh, to uh, manufacture. A pound of cotton actually took several times the man-hours uh, of even a pound of silk. So silk, in a way, uh, was this one fabric that not only felt fabulous on the skin, uh, but also died uh, very easily, and it very rapidly uh, became uh, the favorite um, uh, fabric of, uh, of, of the Western uh, world. Uh, the problem was, was that before uh, the Emperor Justinian, the uh, Chinese effectively had a lock on it. They had a monopoly on it. Uh, and so before the year roughly 600 A.D., if you wanted silk, it had to be brought all the way from China. And you pose this question. How did goods get from China to Rome? Very slowly and very perilously, one laborious stage at a time. Just help us understand, uh, even in brief, uh, just how laborious and difficult a journey we're talking about. Well, there were two ways to get silk from China to the West. The, 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 the route that everybody thinks of is, of course, the famous Silk Road. And the problem with the Silk Road is twofold. Uh, number one uh, is that land transport is inherently more more uh, expensive than, than sea transport. Think about you know transporting a ton of something 
uh, on your back or on a cart by land versus putting it into a boat and setting sail. Uh, and in fact, in the ancient world, the cost of uh, transport by sea was ten times cheaper than than by land, so it was very much more efficient. The second thing, the second problem with land transport was that it was even uh, it was even bigger. A bigger hurdle was that it was much more dangerous. Think about uh, all the you know the, the dangers of of uh, transporting something across dozens of dozens of kingdoms. Uh, and in fact, the Silk Road was really only open. It was only feasible during two points in history. One was during around the con- around the Common Era when the Han uh, were the Han Chinese were ascendant in the uh, the East, and the Roman Empire was ascendant in the West. And there were only really two stable uh, empires in between those two, so you could get things across the Silk Road. In fact, that's how silk did first get to to Europe. But the other route that was actually much more efficient and carried uh, almost all of the trade. Uh, between uh, China and the West uh, was the Indian Ocean route. Uh, and this got a big boost uh, with the harnessing of the monsoon winds, uh, which enabled you to cross the Bay of Bengal uh, and, the, uh, and the Arabian Sea uh, and uh, also the South China Sea pretty much in one fell uh, swoop. Um, and even this, this was a very, very dangerous route. I mean, if a sailor you know, could say could could survive more than three or four monsoon seasons. Uh, he was doing very, he or she was doing very well. But you know, the sea route was also very laborious because it had to be done in stages. It had to be done in at least three monsoon stages. And you know, you could theoretically do it in a couple of years, but uh, goods probably took an average of three or four years to get from one end of the old world uh, to the other. Uh, both of the routes were were fabulously expensive. Both of them were fabulously dangerous, uh, and uh, and uh, it was merely a matter of degree that the sea route was better than the land route. Hmm. And of course, one of the consequences of that long and incredibly difficult journey is also then what the cost of those goods ultimately was. You say uh, silk was costly enough in China. In Rome, it was yet a hundred times costlier, worth its weight in gold. I mean, it's really extraordinary to, to think about that, and it, and it helps us understand why it was such an incredibly precious thing that uh, only a tiny, tiny privileged, wealthy minority of the population could even dream about having. You know, we, we don't know how many times the goods changed hands. Uh, but it was probably on the order of at least uh, a dozen times. And, of course, at each stage along the way, each change of merchants, the price uh, in, increased. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't until the 2nd the or 3rd century that Romans could even afford to um, uh, make a garment that was, that was actually uh, made entirely of silk. The, uh, the most common form of it was sarasen, which was a, uh, a weave of silk and, uh, and linen. Uh, and and I you know tell the story of this this one degenerate Roman Empire named Elagabalus uh, who was so fond of silk that he uh, powdered his face and plucked all the hair off of his body to show it uh, to show his silk wardrobe off better. <laughs> um, you you tell us that the 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 sort of the nitty gritty of of trade in this period uh, we don't know a, a whole lot about some of those details of, of how these transactions were carried out, but that a, a, a wonderful uh, set of clues is given to us by some very uncommon papers that were found uh, in an old storage room in, in Cairo. Uh, 
tell us what these uh, Janitsa papers reveal to us. Well, Orthodox Jewish belief, or just, you know, a thousand years ago, standard Jewish belief, uh, dictated, the law dictated, that you couldn't throw away any document that had the Word of God in it. Well, almost anything written back then had the Word of God in it. Uh, so uh, these Jewish merchants who lived in Fatimid Europe in the 10th, 11th, 12th century uh, would uh, keep these trade records. And these, these families were, uh, were, were long-distance merchants, and they were spread between Gibraltar in the west all the way probably to India and certainly to Arabia in the east. And so their communications uh, got put into into this storehouse. It was called a Geniza, and it was a, it was a building that was used specifically for discarded documents containing the Word of God. And what's interesting about them is that they, although they were written in Hebrew script, they were actually in the Arabic language, because that's what they spoke. Uh, and so this being Egypt, being Egypt, a nice dry climate, again, history's flashlight, this particular group of documents was, um, was, uh, was preserved. And it became the life's work of a man by the name of Esti Gotin, uh, who uh, was a scholar, uh, a Jewish scholar who worked uh, in, uh, in the United States. Uh, and he got a hold of these documents, and it was just, well, it was not only a, a record of family life, uh, Jewish family life in that period, but it was also a marvelous record of the trade of the period. And it documented what goods were being transported, the customs of trade, uh, how much it cost, to ship goods from one place to another, the dangers and the risks uh, involved in the techniques. Uh, it was just a wonderful window into how trade was conducted uh, during the, the 10th, uh, and 11th, and 12th centuries. You tell us it provides a rare glimpse into the slow, perilous, grim, gritty world of the peddlers who bought and sold merchandise. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing to realize about trade in the ancient uh, world, is that it was in general the work of small merchants. Uh, and that was a process that changed very dramatically right around the year 1600 uh, with the chartering of the English and Dutch East India companies. Uh, because the, and this is one of the central points of the book, is that trade is a very capital-intensive process. Uh, if you're going to set out on ships to the Indies to get spices, you've got to buy the ships. Those are expensive. You've got to hire large crews. They're expensive. You've got to outfit the ships with uh, supplies and particularly silver to trade uh, for the goods that you want. That's expensive. So you have to be able to raise huge amounts of capital. Uh, and that was something that these large organizations uh, did very, very well, particularly right off the bat, the Dutch uh, uh, East India Company. And it wasn't very long before they took over the trade from these small peddlers. Hmm. Well, and uh, I guess that points the way to something said a little later in the book. Stable countries are trading countries. Yeah. Uh, once once again, uh, that, that certainly comes into play along the Silk uh, Road. Uh, and, and it also, uh, you also see it, for example, very, very, very far back, uh, into the Roman era, and you can actually trace the trade uh, between India and Rome, and there was quite a bit of trade between India and Rome, uh, by the uh, gold coins that you find, uh, the silver coins that you find on the India subcontinent. Uh, you, you, they, from time to time, people will uncover on, in, in India these caches of ancient Roman uh, coins, and you can tell, you can date them very easily uh, by the head of the emperor that's on them. 
And so you can actually trace the pattern in the flow of, of trade. And what you find is that the trade was very vigorous until the end of the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And then the coins virtually disappear uh, after that date, after about, I believe it's 180 uh, A.D., uh, and then, of course, that's when Rome started to uh, to uh, fall apart. And of course, I suppose it's it's busy just trying to survive, <laughs> and uh, and doesn't have the the, the wherewithal to uh, to to keep this connection with far flung places. Yeah, Rome. I mean, this is sort of it's almost a cliche, but it's true. Uh, which is that Rome was essentially a plunder machine. Its economic uh, strength was in very large. Uh, 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 part due to war booty. Uh, and, you know, when they ran out of places to conquer uh, in the late 2nd and early 3rd century A.D., their economy fell apart. Hmm. We learn about so many other important figures and, and elements in the history of how trade developed over the years. Uh, we, we just have time to touch uh, and uh, on a couple of them, and, uh, and of course we'll leave the listeners to seek out your book and read about... Uh, all of this in, in, in much greater detail. I was surprised to find the name of Christopher Columbus in your book as being a truly pivotal figure, not so much for that famous first voyage to the New World as for his second voyage. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I wanted to stay away from well-known stories, uh, but I couldn't stay away from Christopher Columbus. First, there, there are three things about that. Uh, the very first thing is that Christopher Columbus wasn't looking for the New World. He wasn't even looking for souls to save. He was looking for spices. Spices were the primary trade commodity of the era. The Portuguese uh, essentially controlled the eastward route around the Cape of uh, Good Hope. Uh, they had just uh, discovered that route. Uh, and so he was looking for a way of getting to the Indies to get spices uh, by sailing uh, west. And, you know, at that time, no, no civilized educated person thought that the world was flat. Uh, everybody knew that it was, was round, who had an education. And what Christopher Columbus did is he, he, he made sort of the spectacular uh, error of wishing, thinking that the world was much smaller than it was, so he could actually survive the journey uh, to, to the Indies, when in fact everybody knew, and Columbus didn't realize, that the world was much bigger than it actually was, and it wasn't, you know, it was only by happy accident did he run into this continent, uh, the New World, uh, you know, North and South America before uh, before he starved to death. So he was he was he was he was both wrong and he was very very lucky. And it wasn't until his third voyage that he realized that he hadn't gotten to uh, to to Asia. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the 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 most important voyage of Columbus, as you pointed out, was his second voyage, the one in 1493. Uh, it was a much larger voyage than his first. He had 17 uh, vessels instead of three. And the vessels contained almost the entire Western inventory of domesticated plants and crops and animals. Uh, and so this seeded uh, the, uh, the North American continent basically with, with, with cattle and, and pigs. And, of course, he brought back uh, potatoes and tomatoes and chili and, most importantly, corn. Uh, because there were vast swaths of the uh, of the um, uh, of, of the old world, which really were, were very poor agriculturally. They were they were too far north to produce rice, or they were too far south uh, to to produce wheat. And this in between corn fit this in between area of southern Europe, this vast impoverished area of southern Europe uh, and the Ukraine, uh, very nicely, and allowed these areas in the uh, subsequent centuries. 
uh, to prosper. Pretty much the same thing also happened uh, further north in poorer soils with the importation of the New World of the potato. So what you had was what, what, what has been termed the Columbian Exchange, in which Adam basically, uh, at its crudest level, animals, livestock from the old world populated the new world, were introduced into the new world, or in the case of the horse, reintroduced. Uh, and uh, and these, these plant crops uh, from, from, the, uh, from the new world seeded uh, the old world. Hmm. And that's just the major ones. I mean, they're you know, minor ones like the pineapple, the avocado, uh, you know, the fruit and nut trees of, of Europe were, were also of massive importance, but they weren't as important as the cow, the pig, and corn and the potato. Hmm. Your book goes on, of course, to explore all kinds of other facets of this rich and fascinating history, including uh, the the very significant role played um, by the Muslims and the uh, incredible dominance which uh, which they exerted over much of this, the uh, the uh, way in which uh, the balance of trade changes, the way in which modern trade has changed in a lot of different ways, and various technologies that have made certain breakthroughs possible. Mm. I want to touch on a couple of really central points to finish. You have already touched on the fact that we seem to have, as human beings, have this very strong impulse, almost as much as breathing, uh, an impulse, a desire to trade with others. Your book talks about that, but secondly, about the fact that this urge to trade has had a gigantic effect on how human affairs have played out, that our hunger for trade and our hunger for goods has also then, in a sense, created many wars and created many friendships and all kinds of artistic breakthroughs. I mean, we would not be the same race we are today were it not for this part of our makeup. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly uh, trade has, has been a vehicle for the, if you will, the intellectual insemination of all of mankind. It's the most spectacular example occurs, uh, you know, with the Battle of Talos, uh, which was a battle between the Chinese and the uh, one of the early uh, Muslim empires of of uh, South Asia. And what happens at this this battle is that first of all, the, the Muslim empires wanted to to attack China because they wanted to. Uh, to control its trade. And at this battle of Talos in Central Asia in the late 8th century A.D., some Chinese uh, traders and soldiers are captured who know how to make paper. And the West, of course, hasn't been the same since. I mean, you know, what did you write things on uh, in Western Europe before 770 A.D.? Well, you used parchment. Uh, and if you were in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Egypt, you used papyrus, both of which are very, very difficult to manufacture. And aren't terribly efficient, or you could write in stone, and all of a sudden you have this medium uh, that allows you to communicate much more easily. So it's a momentous uh, episode in the intellectual history of, of mankind. The, 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 you know, it's not only a positive, it can be a negative uh, as, as well. Uh, the, the Bessemer story moves forward with an inundation of uh, Western Europe in the late 19th century uh, with all this cheap American wheat. Uh, and, of course, uh, continental farmers uh, react to that very, very negatively because the, this cheap foreign competition is undercutting them and uh, basically destroys uh, their, their market because they can't, they can't compete with this, this American grain. And so you get a, a global trade war 
between Europe and the United States, and you have a period of escalating tariffs that finally culminates in Smoot-Hawley uh, in 1930, which most historians who've looked at it uh, believe gave rise to great extent to World War II. I mean, had uh, uh, the Germans been able to sell us things, been able to export and sell us things, which Smoot-Hawley prevented them from doing, they probably would have uh, recovered much more rapidly from Versailles and from World War I, and Hitler probably would have never come to, uh, to power. The, uh, the people in our State Department were very uh, cognizant of, of that uh, during the war. And as soon as the war was over, uh, they set up uh, the uh, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Uh, and so here we are today. Hmm. It's an amazing history. It's a history of incredible wealth and a history of plague, a history of wars, a history of friendship. Uh, it is our history told in this remarkable book called A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. William J. Bernstein, the author. William J. Bernstein, you have accomplished something truly extraordinary in this book, and I am grateful to you for writing it and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Best wishes to you. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here.